Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Biblical Worldview series with Jim Jordan, and here he's continuing his thoughts on the temptations of Christ by further discussing temptation and Adam and Eve. We do have a few events coming up that we wanted to keep you aware of. On March 4th and 5th here in Birmingham, Alabama, we'll be having a regional course on What is Creation with Peter Lightheart. A couple of weeks after that, we will be having an intensive course on the City of God and the Mission of Christ with Wes Baker. You can find more information for both of those courses in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much, as always, for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the temptation of Adam and Eve. Several weeks ago, I gave the first of a couple of lectures on the temptation of Christ. That was so long ago that uh, I'm a little bit reluctant to take it up where I left it off. And instead, I'd like to place a parenthesis in this little series on temptation by looking at the temptation of Adam and Eve. And a theme of temptation in the book of Genesis, and this is on my mind because I'm teaching Genesis to the theology students, and also having to write an essay on this particular subject, so it's very convenient for me to deal with this this morning. Uh, but it will shed light on the temptation of Christ, and for that reason, if for, if for no other, I think it would be worth our while to drop back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3 this morning and take a look at uh, the initial temptation that's found here. Before we start with that, I want to look at Genesis chapter 1 and see the various acts of covenant making that we find. In order to understand what happens in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we need to have a picture of how God acts in Genesis chapter 1. And we'll simply take a quick survey of the chapter and then isolate some elements that we'll consider. As you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, when God originally created the world, it had two general conditions that needed to be corrected, if we can use that word, or uh, things that God is going to change in the course of creation week. First, it was formless and empty. Now, days one through three, we see God doing things that correct this state of formlessness. And he does it by acts of separation. And the condition of emptiness is corrected on days four through six by acts of filling. Now, the importance of that for us is that man is the image of God. Man is going to do the same kinds of things God does. So we need to look at what God does in Genesis 1, and then we'll see man made in God's image, and that'll give us an indication of the things that man is supposed to do and which he either does or fails to do. Now, in each case, on each day, we have a series of five covenant actions that God does. We, for a variety of reasons, we would call these covenant acts and that the act of creating the world uh, is an act of creating a covenant environment which is structured according to covenant. I'm not, I'm not going to try to defend that, but the earth was made as a place for man. The difference between a place and a space 
is that a place is organized. And the word that's used for the earth throughout Genesis chapter 1, the Hebrew word is Eretz, it means place. It means a structured, organized environment. And God, in the Acts of Genesis chapter 1, is making an organized, structured environment for man to live in. Later on at the flood, uh, again, the word Eretz is the one used. There's a different word that means ground or dirt or earth that's used in other passages. And in the flood, this Eretz is decreated all the way back down to Genesis 1 verse 2 where everything is covered with water. And then it's recreated back up into a formed, structured environment as a place for man. But here we can see God, as he begins to form and structure this place for man, engages in several kinds of covenant actions. And first of all, each time there comes the covenant word, let there be. Each time God says, let there be, let there be light, let there be an expanse in the midst of the heavens, let the waters below the heavens be gathered together, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, let us make man in our image. First, there's the covenant word. Then, after that, comes the covenant action, either of separating or of filling. Either of separating or of filling. Now, we'll have to remember that this is a covenant action. Third, we find covenant provisions. And the covenant provision consists of naming or describing what has been made. When God separates things, we find on the first three days that he names them. There are five things named, day and night, firmament, land, and seas. These are the things that are separated. The first day, day and night are separated. The second day, waters above and waters below are separated. And the third day, uh, the dry land and the seas are separated. And these are named. The last three days, God fills the earth, and as he does so, he describes. He describes. Now, man, as the image of God, is supposed to recapitulate that. By looking at what's made and understanding it, Adam will begin to name things and describe them, engaging in a scientific task of getting wisdom. We'll come to that. Fourth and fifth, we find that God has a covenant witness and a covenant judgment. And God saw what he had made, and it was good. The witnessing is the seeing. And then the judgment is pronouncing it good. Now, this is very important for us because it has everything to do with the fall of man. The fall of man has to do with the knowledge of good and evil and the opening of his eyes to where he sees. And what God is doing here, all and you know this passage, I don't need to read all this to you, each time God sees what he has made and he pronounces it good, and these are judicial acts. They're acts of judgment. Witness-bearing, seeing it, and then pronouncing. Now, in theology, we call this an eschatological phenomenon. That is, it comes at the end. After God has initiated it by saying, let there be, and after God has done it by making it and describing it, then God evaluates it. And its priestly task of evaluation, of passing judgment at the end of things, God sees and he pronounces it good. The only thing during the entire week that God ever saw and didn't pronounce good was what? God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. That was in the morning of the sixth day. And so he made the woman by separating her from the man, which is a covenant act, 
making one into two and then a relationship between the two. And then it's good. And then after he has made the woman, he gives the cultural mandate to both of them, which shows that Adam was not engaged in the cultural mandate before he had his wife, contrary to the teaching of some. Now, since man is in the image of God, we expect that man will be like God, a covenant-acting being. The difference is that man is the image of God, and so what man does has to be a copy of what God does. What is man? Basically, man is a symbol. Now, you ought to think about this a little bit, but the bottom line on human nature is that man is a symbol. Man is not something that exists by itself and that takes on a symbolic meaning. Man is created a symbol, the image of God. Everything that God makes is symbolic of him, but man particularly is a symbol of God, and his whole life is to be a life of imaging God's life. Everything man does is symbolic. Either he symbolically recapitulates the life of God properly, or else he symbolically does it wrong. But everything man is and does is symbolic because man is made a symbol of God. Now, if you'll think about that a whole lot, you'll begin to see how the so-called ceremonial law and moral law relate to one another because they both have to do with symbolically copying God's lifestyle. You'll also see the importance of the arts and the inescapability of the arts for man. Contrary to tendencies in our own Protestant culture which say that the arts are superfluous and we can do without them. Man is a symbol and his entire life is symbolic. It's inescapably so. Now in the fall, man didn't want to be a symbol. He didn't want to be a symbol of God. In fact, he wanted to make God a symbol of man, which is what all paganism does. Even the Bible says they make their gods after their own image. That's a reversal of the way it's supposed to be. Man is a symbol of God. The meaning of his life is not found within himself, but found by his being an image of something else. Man does not have meaning within himself. Your meaning of your life comes from being an image or symbol of God. You're a pointer to something else. And the only meaning that you can have is in being that pointer to someone else. Now, God created man as his image in two respects. We find in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it, or more accurately, to serve it and to guard it. These are the two standard words in the Bible that every Hebrew student learns in about the first week of class, shamer, which means guard. He uses it for his verb paradigms. Shamer, shamarah, shamer, ta, shamer, shamerdi. And he goes all the way down, 150,000 different verb forms using shamer, which I don't remember anymore. I use an interlinear. But uh, the other word is to serve, eved, which is your standard word for to be a slave or to serve or anything. Now, those are man's two tasks, the kingly task of serving and the priestly task of guarding. Guarding has to do in the Bible with measuring and establishing boundaries and then protecting those boundaries. And you always see the priests doing that, especially in the book of Ezekiel. The man with a measuring rod goes and he measures and he establishes all the boundaries and establishes exactly how everything is to be made, all the rules, and then he guards in accordance with those rules. That's a priestly task. The kingly task is wisdom and understanding 
and then assisting in the growth and maturation of things. And God, after he made man in his image, especially as a king of the priest, then he brings animals to man to help him understand these things. Now, first of all, he brought some animals to Adam to help him understand what it means to be a king. And then he brought an animal to man to help him understand what it means to be a priest. First of all, he brought animals to man to see what he would name them. And this naming has to do with distinguishing one animal from another. And so man recapitulates the life of God by observing covenant separations. And he gains wisdom by naming and describing these animals. So the animals are brought to the man, and whatever he called them, that was its name. And then the man learned something. He acquired wisdom from being in contact with these animals. And what did he learn? He learned that there was no sexual mate for himself. All the animals came in sexual bipolar pairs, and they all had helpers fitted for them, so to speak. But for Adam, there was no helper found for him. Now, Adam might have reasoned this way. Well, all these animals come in pairs, but then that's what animals are like, and I'm not an animal, so it doesn't apply to me. So you'll notice that already there's an analogy set up between animals and man. There has to be in order for Adam to learn anything. Adam didn't look at those animals and say, well, that's what animals are like, but me, I'm just by myself. No, Adam looked at the animals and said, that's what they're like, and somehow that's what I should be like. So there's an analogy between men and animals. The reason the analogy is set up in Genesis 2 is that both of them are formed out of the ground. Man is formed out of the dust of the ground, and then it says, God formed out of the dust of the ground every beast of the field and bird of the sky and brought them to the man. That establishes the analogy between men and animals. That's why later on, the sacrificial system, the analogy sustained, that animals can symbolize men in the sacrificial system. So Adam learned something from the animals. There's a progression here. The animals are brought. Man observes. He acquires wisdom and a need. And then God fills the need. The man goes to sleep and God corrects the condition while man is passive. In fact, man goes into what the Bible calls deep sleep. Remember, we talked about that when we talked about the labyrinth motif. The man goes all the way down into what's called deep sleep, which is what Abraham was in when the animals were separated. You know, this analogy between men and animals in the ground explains what happens when God makes a covenant with Abraham. God is going to make a covenant between Abraham and the ground and connect Abraham to the land. Remember, in Genesis 15, you will have all this land. And how does he do it? He takes animals and divides them in half. One half of the animal symbolizes Abraham. The other half symbolizes the ground. And by passing between them, God establishes a covenant bond between these two halves of the animals. And that symbolizes the bond between Abraham and the land. If you get these analogies in your mind, you can understand a lot of strange things that happen in the Bible that presuppose that we know these analogies. Now, that's what happens in Genesis 2. Now, what happens when God wants to teach man about his priestly task? First, he brings an animal. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And man is to observe. Hey, I'm supposed to guard this garden, and there's an enemy in the garden. I, 
God has said I'm supposed to serve the garden, and I can't do it because I need a helper. So I go to God and I say, you told me to serve the garden, and I can't do it because I don't have a helper suitable for me. And so God puts me to sleep and gives me a helper. So Adam knows how God acts. Now God says, now Adam says, hey, I'm supposed to guard this garden, and I can't do it because there's this evil thing inside the garden, which is tempting me. So Adam goes to God and says, hey, you told me to guard the garden, but there's an enemy in the garden. So God puts Adam to sleep and gives him the ability to deal with the enemy, right? No, that's not the way it worked out because Adam fell. But you see, if Adam had, well, Adam knew this. If we read the text carefully, the two situations are parallel. Adam was supposed to learn wisdom from coming in contact with the animal. And he was supposed to learn that he needed something. He lacked something. And just as man was not able out of his own power to create a helpmeet, so man is not able out of his own power to deal with the serpent. And just as God had to give man a helpmeet, man being passive, so God had to give man something so that he could deal with the serpent. This is hay fever, folks, and I'm sorry about it, but I can't help it. Man would have been passive. What does man do? Well, he grabs for something. What does he grab for? Now, if your Bible is open, you look at chapter 2, verse 25, and it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is really sad, because that should not be the last verse of chapter 2. That should be the first verse of chapter 3. Because everything about nakedness is what's involved in chapter 3. After man sins, he is aware that he's naked, and he makes fig leaves, and then God covers him with animal skins. The problem in the area of wisdom and kingship was that man was alone. The problem in the area of priesthood and guarding is that man does not have the robe of judicial office. And what God would have given Adam, if Adam had asked for it, was the robe of judicial office. And carrying that, wearing that robe, Adam would have said to the devil, Go hence, depart from me. And the devil would have had to leave the garden. See, now we are so used to thinking that man's nakedness was because he was sinless and that clothing is given us because we're sinners. And if we look at each other, we're tempted. And so we wear clothing to cover up our sinfulness. And so when we're really saved, we take our clothing off. And that's why you've got these various nudist groups on the fringes of, of Christianity through the centuries. Because they think that, well, we're saved now and we don't sin anymore. And we're in union with Christ, and so we'll be naked again, go back to the sinless condition. But that's not what nakedness means in the Bible. Adam and Eve were naked because they were babies. You've got to understand that. Adam and Eve were naked because they were babies. And when they grew up, they'd wear clothes. Now, how do they know that? Because God wears clothes. God is the supreme king. God is the supreme uh, priest. And God is clothed in the glory cloud. And God is clothed in light. God is clothed in an architectural environment. This is clothing. We've talked about this now in architecture lectures, so it ought to be a little bit familiar to you. Not only is this clothing, but also a building around us is clothing. It's real important. When Noah uncovers himself in the tent, 
The tent is Noah's clothing, and when Ham goes in, Ham is invading uh, Noah's privacy. And that's real important, and we'll get to it when we talk about the sin of Ham. But for right now, architecture is clothing, and society is clothing. So that God is clothed by having four cherubim around his throne, and then 24 elders around the throne, and then myriads of angels around his throne, and myriads and myriads of human beings around his throne, and all creation around his throne. That's all clothing. And that's the way the Bible speaks of it. It brings honor and glory to him to be surrounded by this. And as Adam and Eve matured in wisdom, they would be given garments analogous to God's. Man is the image of God, and just as God is clothed in the garments of glory, which give him his office of rule and judgment, so man would acquire garments of glory and beauty, as the high priest wore, as a symbol of his office. Don't think of clothing as something that just covers up man's nakedness. It becomes that, but primarily in the Bible, clothing is a robe of office. That's important in the book of Genesis. When, when Noah takes off his robe, he's taking off his, his robe of office. And when Ham goes in and comes out and tells his brothers, what Ham is trying to do is steal the robe of office. Later on in the book of Genesis, what happens at the end? Who is the eschatological figure in the book of Genesis who figures the life of Christ? Joseph. Joseph's father gives him a coat which puts him in authority over all of his brothers. And his brothers hate it. And when his brothers get him and they throw him in the pit, what do they do with the coat? They tear it into little pieces. That's what they hated. You remember that. They throw Joseph in the pit. And the first thing they do is tear up that coat. And then at the end of the book, not only has Joseph been made the judge of the covenant people by Jacob, but Pharaoh puts his robe on Joseph and Joseph becomes ruler of the world as well. That's what the robe means in the book of Genesis, and that's what the robe means in the Bible as a whole. So Jesus in his resurrection body is robed in glorious light, and so will we be. Nakedness does not in the Bible mean sinfulness or something that has to be covered. But nakedness just means that you're a baby and you haven't yet grown to the point where you get to wear the robe. Now the question is, is man going to seize the garment or is he going to wait for God to confer it upon him? Never in the Bible does any man take up an office for himself. Always an office is bestowed. And it's not bestowed on babies. Office is bestowed on elders in the Bible. You're supposed to grow and acquire wisdom, and then you get the robe of office. And when Solomon becomes king, as we'll see, he's a very young man. He's only about 40 or so, and he's terrified of having the robe of office. The robe of office is something that's conferred to those who are mature. You can think further about this if you'll think into the New Testament and about how Jesus was stripped naked on the cross and then at the resurrection was robed in power and glory. And if you think further, you'll remember that Peter was naked when Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. That's a clothing ceremony. Peter comes out of the water naked, which ties to Genesis chapter 1 and the world emerging out of the water. And Peter comes and he confesses sin. And Christ says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. You remember that? He is conferring upon him the office, not of pope, but of elder. And so the robe that Peter is going to wear as an office bearer in the church is conferred upon him in this condition of nakedness. 
He goes back to it. There's so much more about this in the Bible. I hope that you begin to get a picture of it. Now let's look at what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. We ought to be in a position to understand it now. The serpent, the dragon, if you'll remember, says to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. For from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, Not, you shall surely die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make her wise, she took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The expression with her means that Adam was standing by the whole time. Adam was not off in the garden somewhere else while this was going on. Adam was standing by the whole time. Gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Well, that's what the devil said. Your eyes will be open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And God called the man and said, Where are you? And the man says, I was naked, so I hid myself. And then God begins to interrogate them. And he asks them to pass judgment on themselves. And they don't do so, so God does. And then in verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, what's interesting about all this is it's rather curious if you take some traditional types of interpretation what's going on here. Let's look at some of the curiosities in the text. I thought that man had been made in the image and likeness of God. Then how is it a temptation for Satan to come and say, you will be like God? Why didn't Adam say, well, we already are like God? And then after he's eaten of the fruit, God says, behold, a man has become like one of us. I thought he was made like one of us. Good question, huh? How do we resolve that? Well, I'll show you how we can resolve it. And I'll tell you right now, man is created in the moral likeness of God, but not in his judicial likeness. He starts off like God in that he knows what good and evil are. But he is to mature to become even more like God in that he will pass judgment concerning good and evil. Let's look at another aspect of it. It says their eyes were, the serpent says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Well, were Adam and Eve blind? No, they could see. After they ate of it, their eyes were open, sure enough. Weren't their eyes open before? What's the difference? Well, we already know from Genesis chapter 1 what the difference is. Adam and Eve had natural sight, but they didn't have judicial sight. God saw what he had made and pronounced it good. It's sight in that sense, judicial sight, passing judgment that Adam and Eve didn't have. But then when they ate the fruit, suddenly they had it. And they realized that they weren't ready for it. Let's look at one other curiosity here. Well, let me see. I, I've, I've departed from my notes, so I'm going to have to glance at them for a second. All right, let's just go to an explanation of the passage. There are three things we need to look at in the Bible that will help us to understand what's going on here. I have asserted 
that what Adam and Eve were supposed to learn from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was that they, they needed judicial office in order to deal with the devil. The devil has invaded. We don't know how to deal with him. We need the robe of judicial office to do it. But what their sin was was they grabbed for that robe themselves to cover their nakedness without waiting for God to give it to them. First of all, let's look at what it means for the eyes to be open. We've already seen in Genesis chapter 1 that God's seeing is part of his passing judgment. We find in Jeremiah 32, 18 and 19, that God's eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God's eyes pass judgments. In Psalm 11:4, the eyes of the Lord behold, his eyelids try the sons of men. Concerning false gods, Isaiah 44, 9 says that they see not nor know, seeing and knowing, and they are put to shame. Of course, that's very clear, a connection with Genesis 3 as well. One writer is summarized by saying that the picture is of the eyes of God functioning in the legal sphere to give a conclusive judgment concerning lives of men which have been observed by God. Thus, in the book of Ezekiel, God's eyes spare the sons of men, or they do not spare. The eyes pass judgment. So the opening of the eyes is a symbol for, well, it's not a symbol, but it's an aspect of becoming a judge. Secondly, let's look at the aspect of where the serpent says, and God also says, you will become like God. I have asserted that man is already like God morally, and that he was to mature and become more like God by becoming a judge, as God is. We could draw that from the fact that the prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was only temporary. How do we know that? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God said to Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So Adam and Eve knew that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was for them to eat sooner or later. So they knew that the prohibition was only temporary. Now, they didn't want to fast for 40 days. They wanted to have it right now. They knew that the prohibition was temporary. So they knew that there was growth and development that would be necessary before they could eat of the tree. And that's what they didn't want. Uh, Just to answer the question... They were supposed to grow in wisdom and knowledge, and then they would be ready to eat the tree. And what they didn't want was to grow in wisdom and knowledge. They wanted to get it instantly by magic. And so Eve says, she notices that the tree is good for food, which is true. Every tree was good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes, and that's true. It says God planted every tree that was good for food and a delight to the eyes. And that the tree would make her wise. False. That's magic. tree wouldn't make her wise. She didn't want to work to get wisdom. But let's look at this business of being like God. Curious thing is, in the Bible, men who are judges are called gods. Now, we're not used to that, and we shy away from it. But if you were to look at Psalm 82, you'd find that God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then describing these bad judges, bad gods, the psalmist says, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Their eyes are not opened, 
and they don't have knowledge of good and evil. All the language in Genesis 3. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I, on my part, said, You are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. Psalm 82. We're not used to speaking that way. But you'll remember in John 10, verse 34, Jesus cites this passage. If God calls you gods, then why do you complain if I say that I'm a son of God? And uh, if you want to take notes, you could take down Exodus 21, verse 6, Exodus 22, verse 8, and 28, where the judges in Israel are referred to as Elohim, as gods. Now, this language may make us nervous because we're used to thinking of God making, man making himself into a god as something sinful. And that's right. Man can't make himself into a god. But God, when he invests men with the robe of judicial authority, is conferring an aspect of his image to man. And so that the Bible can speak of judges as gods. We have to be able to say what the Bible says without fear. The Bible uses this language. We need to understand it and be able to use it. It's the essence of original sin for man to try to make himself God, but it's the essence of man's true destiny for God to confer on us and make us gods. Not in the sense that we are ever equal to God, or that we grow up in a scale of being, but that we take on more of God's characteristics in that we become judges. Adam and Eve were already morally right, but they were not judges. Well, what about this phrase, knowing good and evil? Does that refer to judgment, becoming a judge? Yes. In context, again, in Genesis 1, we saw God pronounce things good or else not good. And that is the judicial act of making a pronouncement. So, in context, we already know what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. It has to do with judgment, becoming a judge. But we can look later on in the Bible, particularly when kingship is set up in Israel, then this phrase begins to come up very strongly. Solomon, who is the fulfillment of the, the first fulfillment of the Davidic Son Covenant, and the most splendid picture of Christ in the Old Testament, when Solomon becomes a king, he prays to be given an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. Who is able to judge this weighty people of thine? Does that mean that Solomon didn't know the difference between good and evil? No, he knew the difference between good and evil. He had moral knowledge. But it's quite another matter to have to judge and discern, which means seeing, between good and evil in that sense. And he was afraid of it because the people are so weighty. And we'll have to come back to this idea of weight in a minute, I hope. Now, God grants this kingly request. Solomon does not take upon himself, but asks for it. God grants it, and right away we have the story of the two women who come and both claim to be the mother of this child, and uh, Solomon judges between them. We can also look in 2 Samuel 14:17, where the wise woman says to David, For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. So man's ability to judge good and evil is a copy of God's, of the angel of, the, of, the angel of God. And similarly in 2 Samuel 19:27. My Lord the King is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your sight. 
The king is one who has the power to judge. And he sees and he does what is good in his sight. And that has to do with knowing good and evil. According to Deuteronomy 1.39, infants do not know good and evil because they haven't grown to the point where they can. Does that mean that a baby in the womb doesn't know morally what's right and wrong? Oh, no, it doesn't mean that. All babies know morally what's right and wrong. They have moral knowledge. Don't think they don't. John the Baptist in the womb leaped for joy when he saw Jesus in the womb. Oh, they have moral knowledge, but they don't have judicial capacity. So they don't know good and evil in that sense, according to Deuteronomy 139. And those who are very old and have become senile lose the knowledge of good and evil, according to 2 Samuel 19.35. 2 Samuel 19.35, uh, Barzillai is asked by David to become one of his counselors. And Barzillai says, well, I'm so old, I just don't know good and evil anymore. I can't give you good advice. I'm just, you know, my mind doesn't work very well. Does that mean that he didn't have any more knowledge, moral knowledge of good and evil? No, of course he knew what good and evil were, but it meant that he just didn't trust his judicial judgment. Well, now we're in a position to understand this temptation, I think. Satan comes and he says, you are in the image of God, but you're not yet fully so. Why is God making you wait? Aren't you supposed to be robed? As a judge, just like God is, don't wait for God to give it to you, he says. Take it for yourself. You don't have to wait until you're old and you're an elder. Reach for it now when you're young. Take it upon yourself. And so they did. And it says God was true to his covenant because as soon as they ate the fruit, it worked. And their eyes were opened. And they did, they did become judges. And so God comes to them and calls on them. All right, you want to be a judge? You think you're ready to judge? Let's hear you judge. Judge righteous judgment, Adam. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat the tree? Well, it's not my fault. The woman made me do it, and you gave me the woman, so it's your fault. Is that judging righteous judgment? Uh-uh. He's calling evil good and good evil, right? Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Judicial. Eve does the same, except that she does say she was deceived, and the New Testament says she was right, she was deceived. Adam is the primary culprit here. Adam stood by and let his wife talk to the serpent instead of intervening and protecting her. He should have guarded her, but he didn't. He was the primary guard as a covenant and federal head. So Adam is the one who bears all the blame here. I say I would say he bears it all, but I'll hedge myself there and say at least it's clear he bears most of it. He's called upon to be the judge. You want to wear a robe? Okay, wear it. Now, what happened when they ate the fruit? It says they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. That's what clues us into this. It's one more clue as to the meaning of it. Have you ever, when you were younger, or maybe even now, been a member of an organization and they decided to make you the president. You thought, boy, I, that's really great. Of course you tell everybody, well, I'm not sure I'm really ready to be the president of the club. But deep down inside, you really want to be the president of the club. And so they vote you in. And all of a sudden, you've got to stand up and become president and run the meeting. And all of a sudden, you get this sinking feeling in your stomach because you know you're not ready to be the president of the club. Or you become See, it would be easy for me to use elders of the church as an example. Uh, 
And I think this is a problem because we ordain men so young nowadays. They get into office, they have to do something hard, have to chew somebody out, excommunicate somebody, and they've got this terrible feeling in the pit of their stomach because they've got this robe of authority on them and it's crushing them. Why? Because they aren't heavy enough inside. Now, the Bible uses these words heavy and light to describe people. You know that people, uh, you know, we talk about somebody being a lightweight. We use the same language. Or if somebody says something that's really profound, we say, boy, that's heavy, man. Even in our language, we have it. But in Hebrew, these words are used all the time. And the man who is sinful or immature is, is real light, and he flies up as the sparks go upward. He's like chaff. You, this is what God does in the church. God just did it to our church. He puts us all in, the wheat and the chaff, and he throws us all up in the air and scares us to death. And the heavy particles come back down into the pan, and the chaff is blown off. Or as Herman Hook someone once said when a bunch of people left his church, Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord has blown off the scum. But in the Bible, it's blowing off the chaff because the chaff is light and the saints are heavy and they fall back down. Now, in order to carry this robe of office, you've got to be heavy enough to carry it or else it crushes you. And if you don't have that psychological wisdom and maturity, then you just are scared. Now, what happened to Adam and Eve was all of a sudden they realized that they had taken up a position they weren't ready to sustain. And they didn't have the inner maturity and wisdom and strength and heaviness to do this task. You see, they should have grown to where they were ready to carry the robe, but they didn't. Later on in the Bible, you've got to be 30 years old before you can carry the tabernacle. See, the, the Levites... Uh, were the ones who carried the tabernacle. And the Bible says they had to be 30 years old before they were allowed to pick up the pieces and carry them. It's not just because a man continues to grow in strength and power until he's about 30 years of age. I mean, his bones settle in and all that. But it's also because this business of carrying, you've got to have a certain amount of wisdom and heaviness to you. Or else it's utterly terrifying. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. Now suddenly they realize that they don't have the wisdom, and moreover, they no longer even have the righteousness, which are the two preconditions of judicial authority. Righteousness matured in wisdom to the point where you're ready to become a judge. That's why you've got to be an elder, not a younger. It's a problem in our churches today. Those who are older have not spent their whole lives maturing in righteousness and wisdom, so they're lightweights. So the office tends to fall upon younger men, and they have to do the best they can and not let themselves get crushed. That's why God is gracious to us. You see, we've got young elders. And if God is gracious, he'll keep the church small and we won't have any real big problems that would crush our young elders. See, I think God has been gracious to us. He's given us things that stretch us, but he hasn't given us anything yet that breaks us. And there are all kinds of problems out there in the world that would just blow us up. You know, and you would need a whole lot more wisdom and maturity to handle them than any of us have. But we strive and grow. But once the office is conferred, it doesn't go away. Now, I'm just going to mention this, and then we'll take it up again next week, and we'll review, because I think this is probably a new idea to most of you. The fig leaves don't do the trick, and God clothes them in animal skins. Partly that's to show that man is now a beast. Uh, throughout the Bible... False rulers are called beasts, especially in Daniel and Revelation. And now that Adam and Eve have made themselves rulers by their own power, 
God clothes them in animal skins and says, you thought you'd become a god, but now you're just a beast. But the other thing it does, that clothing in animal skins is a symbol that God will clothe man through sacrifice. That is, the animal, some animal will have to die, which is analogous to man, that is, the death of Jesus Christ, will provide the garment of authority for Adam and Eve. But that's going to come in the future. And they are not yet given the right to judge, but they're given the hope that God will fulfill his covenant and will someday robe them in the death of Jesus Christ, which will give them office, judicial office. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.